Okay, today on the show, we have two black and white movies that you must check out. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for tuning in, I do appreciate it. We've got a couple of black and white movies, as I mentioned today, that uh, I'd like to see you check out. They're also known as monochrome movies, if you want to be a pretentious douche about it. So, before we get into those, though, I I do want to talk about, you know, I've, I've mentioned my weight loss on the show in the past, and... You know, I've, I've had my struggles because usually for me, it's a very large swing from one weight to the other, you know, so the high end, you know, I'll be in like the 230s and then in the low end, I'm in like the 150s. So there are a lot of repercussions for that. And, and what has happened is because I've done that so many times where I've lost and gained weight. I've held on to my clothes each time so that I don't have to bankrupt myself because I have no self-control and can't eat in moderation. You know, I have all these all these clothes on hand and and what ha- what I noticed this time happening was, you know, I have like a full dresser of of these older clothes that are the smaller sizes, right? This happened to be right at about summertime when I was switching into these these smaller clothes, so I had all my shorts, and I have like a lot of pairs of shorts from that size range, and so the hardest part about that is it's like, I don't, like I said, I don't want to bankrupt myself every time I lose weight, but the shorts that I was in before I lost weight the first time were baggy cargo shorts and things like that, and it's like, it's not a good look. It, they, they feel really sloppy on me. They don't really look right. They just, all in all, they're not, they're not very great. So I'm, I'm kind of looking towards, you know, investing a little bit of money and getting some decent fitting shorts so I don't look like a slob out there. But I also have to be realistic, you know, like I have to consider the fact that it's, it's very possible that I might gain the weight back. You know, this, this time around, I, I think I'm doing a much better job of maintaining and, and not straying off course or anything, but it's like, holy shit, man. Like, I, I can't I can't pretend like it's not a possibility. And the other thing is like, I don't know if any of you have noticed this, but like so many, I don't know about women, but like men's pants now, you cannot buy a pair of men's pants that aren't like elastic stretchy pants, you know? Like they're jeans, but they're made with this like elastic fabric that are made to stretch with your, you know, your gain and weight or whatever, you know, whatever it is. I mean, the problem is I just, I want my, my pants to fit. If I buy a size 32, 32, I want it to fit like that. I don't want, if I'm, you know, if I'm really a 36, I don't want to be able to fit into a 32 and say that I can fit into a 32 just because, you know, so it's, it's a little ridiculous, but like, luckily a lot of the hoodies that I have when winter rolls around, assuming that I haven't put a lot of the weight back on or anything are, you know, they're, they're smaller hoodies, you know, and they'll, they'll fit. I mean, now, I mean, I've only been buying larger hoodies recently, but 
you know, there are some old ones that I have that I still really enjoy and, and really would like to be able to wear. I do find it funny though, like my t-shirt collection. So pretty much, I mean, it's probably not right, but like I wear pretty much the same exact size t-shirts all the time, no matter what weight I'm at. And once you swing up to that like 230s end, you probably should, if you're me, you know, you should probably slip into an XL, but I still wear a large, you know? And I mean, a lot of the, like the collared shirts that I wear for work are, they're, they're made like they're larger, you know? So it's like, I don't really need larger shirts for work, but it's nice. Cause like t-shirts, I just, I rotate through them. Like I, I end up getting rid of tons of them every year, you know, cause I just, I wear them out and they're not very resilient, especially now they're all really cheap and I don't feel too strongly about any of them. So, you know, I can just move on and I do kind of collect t-shirts. So that's kind of a, a thing, you know, luckily, luckily though, I mean, I can, you know, I can stow away t-shirts that are still in good shape and I can go back to them whenever I want and rotate them back into, uh, my regular use. As I mentioned, I, I'm, I'm very weary about these movies that I'm talking about today. So we've got Young Frankenstein and we've got It's a Wonderful Life, okay? I was just thumbing through it and I realized that, like, I don't dare talk about my warm-up topics for any longer than a few minutes because I have so many fucking notes on these goddamn movies. Like, what the fuck? But anyway, so I'll get, I'll get right into it just in case it, it runs a little long. I don't, I know that your time is valuable and all that stuff. So we'll start with Young Frankenstein, which was released on December 15th, 1974. It was shot in black and white. It's kind of a, just a, it's going to, satirize the 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 old monster movies of Universal from like the 30s and you know that's that's the whole aim of the movie is is to parody those movies this was directed by Mel Brooks who is a great comedic director he has a lot of classics he has a great sense of humor I I really love Mel Brooks I can't get enough of him he's made I mean he his claim to fame, his original claim to fame was The Producers, which is a story about um, a couple of guys that figure out that if they can make a play that they know will flop, they can like somehow make money off of it or whatever. And so, you know, they try and make the worst play ever. I mean, that one's a solid one. I've, I've seen that a couple of times. It's not as good as his later ones, but it's it's pretty solid. He made the movie Blazing Saddles, which is a Western comedy, and it's about a, a black guy who becomes sheriff of a frontier town, and it, it is just off the wall. Like, I mean, so so my grandpa was big on Westerns, right? I should say it's on my mom's side. It was that grandpa and he has o- had always been into westerns and my grandma was always kind of along for the ride. I don't know if she liked them quite as much as he liked them, but she seemed to like them okay. And so one day they were I was at their house and they were flipping through the the cable guide or the the satellite guide and it was like my <laughs> my my grandpa was rolling by and he saw Blazing Saddles and he was, he just kind of kept going. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. I was like, we haven't been seeing anything. I was like, 
I think you guys should put it on Blazing Saddles. And they, like, I, I had them put it on this, this movie, and they, my grandma was crap. My, my grandpa and grandma were just fucking laughing so hysterically at this fucking movie. It is just, it's got so many off the wall things going on in it. It's just too fucking funny. I mean, there, there are so many sight gags in this, in, in Blazing Saddles. It's just, it's very well done. And it actually was released less than a year before Young Frankenstein. And so, you know, some of the other movies that Mel Brooks has made are like Spaceballs, which parodied the Star Wars movies, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which parodied, you know, the Robin Hood movies, but most most directly it it took shots at the Kevin Costner Robin Hood Prince of Thieves movie. He he also made a movie called Dracula Dead and Loving It, which had Leslie Nielsen as Dracula. And I remember liking that movie as a kid, but I can just about promise you that it would not be good to go back and revisit, so I won't. Uh, but some of his other ones that I, I've been meaning to see, but I just I can't get around to is like Silent Movie, which obviously it's pretty obvious what it's parodying there because he's always parody, parodying movies. High Anxiety, which is taking, you know, it's... It's taking all of the Hitchcock movies and kind of making fun of those. And then History of the World Part 1, which is, uh, it's kind of like the the epic movies of the the 50s and 60s, you know, like the Ben-Hurs and, and things like that. I, I just, I, I think I started watching High Anxiety, and it actually, I think, stars Mel Brooks, which I like Mel Brooks and I like him when he's in bit parts in movies, but I don't know if I want to watch an entire movie that stars Mel Brooks. So that's that's kind of a struggle for me. So I, I didn't end up watching all of that one, but maybe I'll go back and revisit. Who knows? So the writers of this movie were Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder, I would say, was the bigger contributor. He was the one that was talking to Mel Brooks on the set of Blazing Saddles and kind of pitched the very high-level idea of of what it would be, and Mel Brooks just really enjoyed it. So, the composer for this score on uh, Young Frankenstein was a man named John Morris, and I, I didn't really see any standout movies that were, like, you know, movies that I would, I would recognize his music from, but I would say that he did an excellent job of scoring this movie. It w- it's a very well-done score. It captures the essence of the the monster movies that it's trying to evoke. It's just, it's very cool. Gene Wilder is the, the titular young Frankenstein. He is Frederick Frankenstein. He's the grandson of, I think it's Baron von Frankenstein. Uh, I don't know if that's, is Baron von, is that a name or is that, I don't know. But anyway, he is the son of the the Frankenstein that was originally known for reanimating a corpse and all that stuff. Something else you might know Gene Wilder from for sure is like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He was also in that Mel Brooks movie, The Producers. Uh, he was in Blazing Saddles. <sighs> a couple of movies of his that I've never seen that I I've, I know I know of his you know his being in are like Silver Bullet and. Uh, see no evil, hear no evil. And if I'm not mistaken, 
I want to say See No Evil, Hear No Evil is about Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder playing like a blind guy and a deaf guy. And I, I, I've heard very mediocre things about that movie. It's nothing special. Uh, Madeline Kahn plays young Frankenstein's fiance in this movie. Elizabeth. Uh, she's she's in a ton of Mel Brooks movies. Not all of them, but she's in a lot of them. I mean, she's a, she's a very talented actress. Uh, she was also in the movie, if you've never seen it, Paper Moon with Ryan O'Neal and Tatum O'Neal. I don't, I actually don't even honestly remember Madeline Kahn from that movie, but that, that movie is solid. Like, it's about a bunch of, a guy and a, a, a little girl that basically just are grifting and swindling people left and right and it's it's fucking hilarious i mean it's it's a great movie i think it won best picture it's a very good one uh peter boyle plays frankenstein's monster in this movie uh you probably know him most as the dad from everybody loves raymond and he was also in a very good episode of The X-Files. Um, he played a character named Clyde Bruckman who was like clairvoyant and, you know, could could tell the way, you know, people were going to die. It, he was in it. The sense of humor was wonderful. It, it was a great episode. I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, also in this movie is Terry Gar. She plays the character of Inga who is... And I'm always confused by this because she's she's young Frankenstein's lab assistant. She she plays Phoebe's mom on Friends, which is you know only like a an episode or two I think. And she was in the movie Tootsie, which I was not actually I didn't really think was that great. I was kind of disappointed when I finally saw that. Uh, she was also in After Hours, which was a Martin Scorsese movie. I gotta say, like I wasn't a big fan of that one either. I didn't think it was that great. Also, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Marty Feldman plays Igor or Igor, depending on who you ask. And I don't know Marty Feldman from anything, but he is a fucking riot in this movie. He is like the funniest fucking guy. I swear to God. It's just, he has all of these like winks to the camera and shit like that. And it's just fucking hysterical. Cloris Leachman is also in this movie. She is uh, a character named Frau Blucher. Every time they say her name in the movie, the horses like go crazy and neigh and whatever. And it's it's always fucking funny. Um, she's she's in a bunch of different movies and TV shows. It just depends. I think she was the grandma in Malcolm in the Middle. I just I mean, there's a ton of shit that 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 she's been in. Okay, so to kind of distill this plot for you, this is this is what I wrote. This is what I this is how I put it in my my notes, and I, I think it actually is pretty decent. I said, in a parody of classic horror films, Frankenstein's grandson, who is constantly trying to distance himself from his grandfather's reputation, inherits the castle where it all began and must face urges to follow in his grandfather's footsteps. That's that, that's the best way I can put it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of great parts, but as I mentioned, the use of black and white is major in this movie. I mean, this movie wouldn't work if it wasn't in black and white and made to seem like the horror movies it's trying to pretend to be. You know, they also use, like, the short-form 
opening credits to to the you know for the beginning of the movie because you know it's it's the way the the old horror movies would have been and so we get this an opening scene in a classroom and it's basically like this guy comes to see young frankenstein to basically tell him he's been willed this this castle you know that was his grandfather's so this, you know, the story of the movie is proceeding, you know, it, it all stems from that. It's like, you know, young Frankenstein goes, you know, he's got to say goodbye to his, his, uh, fiance and he's got to go and, and just kind of see what he's inherited. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like this, he's instinctively flocking to this castle and he's, but he's still very much insisting, like he, it, it's, it's like a, a thing throughout the movie where he's. He's correcting people who call him Dr. Frankenstein, and he he insists that his name is pronounced Frankenstein, things like that, just fucking top-notch. So he makes this trip out to Transylvania. He meets all of these characters along the way. He meets Igor, Igor, I'll call him Igor, because that's what he's generally called throughout the movie. He meets Igor, he meets Inga, and it's weird because Inga is his assistant and Igor is like also his assistant, but not really. I don't know what you would call him. I mean, just he's just like a hand or something, you know. So throughout this movie, there are just a ton of these like super deadpan moments of just being serious while the silliest fucking shit is going on, you know? And it's just, it cracks me up to no end. I love the deadpan stuff. If anybody that knows me knows that I have this, you know, this deadpan sense of humor and, and that's the way I, I I evoke comedy. Well, if I if I evoke comedy, that's what I'll do. You know, he obviously, it, it, I mean, I'm not giving anything away here. You know that this is not a movie if he doesn't give in and start, trying to do what his grandfather had started trying to do and you know he gets into it he and they actually like especially like for this movie Mel Brooks actually like tracked down the guy who owned the original equipment used in the scenes from the the original Frankenstein movie you know and that's that, I, I need to mention that that is based on the Mary Shelley novel. It's so Mel Brooks got the actual set pieces to to re-set this up, you know? And so it was like, it was very cool because then it's like, it's very real. It's, it's almost like it actually is like a sequel to one of the movies. You know, he goes through the whole process. He's reading his grandfather's books. He's, he's figuring out how to do it, you know? And it's just like, it, it's all very... There's there's a lot of very funny scenes. There's you know there's a scene with uh you know where where they've got they've got to get behind this this secret passage behind this bookcase, and you know it's it's this very great physical comedy scene you know and you know so Gene Wilder and Terry Garr are trying to make this bookcase work and you know he it just does not work out super well for him. There's also another I mean there's a lot of scenes but like. The scene that stands out most in this movie that is the ultimate, if you've heard of anything from this movie, this is it. And that's the scene where he has reanimated the corpse and he is trying to convince people that he is, you know, that the corpse is not dangerous and that 
that it can do all of these these human things, you know? And they do this bit of, like, the song Putting on the Ritz. And, you know, so Gene Wilder is singing his half of the song, and then uh, Peter Boyle is is dancing with him and, and singing the, the occasional line, you know, and he like, and it's incoherent rambling of nonsense that, that Peter Boyle does, you know, he just, you know, like that's what he fucking says. But yeah. So, I mean, I I gotta say with this movie, you know, you get a lot of, I mean, the, the writing is spectacular. I mean, I, I just, I can't believe like, so apparently According to what I've read about this movie, this movie actually was originally almost twice as long as what it ended up being when it was released theatrically, and they they had to cut so much crap because they said basically like one joke would work and then the next three jokes would fall flat and it was like fucking terrible, you know, it was just really, really bad, but I mean... They were clearly trying to get everything they could think of on screen, and they, I mean, they did a solid job cutting it down to what needed to be on screen. You know, obviously, like, so not only did did they do the credits and the music and the black and white, but they also did, you know, the transitions and, and th- you know, like they did the, the iris transitions or the wipes or whatever, the, the lighting, the, the different sets, like I mentioned, you know, they're, I mean, they did a lot of cool stuff, and I put etc. at the end of this uh, this little list of things that I was talking about. And by the way, in case you don't know, it's ETC period. If you see that at the end of a list, that means etc. and it's it's from the Latin word etc. It means it, basically you would it would take the place of saying and other similar things or and so forth or whatever. Basically just more from that realm of things, right? I just wanted to put because a lot of people say etc. or but it's it's at e t space c e t e r a etc. It's just a a fun little fact. I love to spread knowledge to the masses. You know, I had to I had to make sure I was I was actually correct in my my assumptions about that. But you know, it worked out pretty good. You know, there are so many quotable scenes in this movie. You know, there's like the walk this way, which by the way, so I read a little little piece of trivia on this and it said that Aerosmith was like in the middle of recording and they decided to take a break one night and go see this movie, you know, so they go and see Young Frankenstein and then apparently they come back and like the next morning they wrote walk this way. And I read it and I'm like, I feel like that's something that somebody might have made up, but I, I, I didn't dig into it too much. It just, it sounded like it was made up, but what can you do? I don't know. I don't remember when, you know, the, the song Walk This Way was released by Aerosmith. So it could very well have been, you know, in line with that and made sense. So my, one of my biggest issues with this movie and, you know, I love this movie to pieces. It's it's so great. And I watch it like every Halloween. Uh, I should say like around Halloween time. And I just, I really enjoy it. But I cannot get people to watch it. You know what I mean? Like, I've got a friend that loves Mel Brooks movies. Loves them. And he's never gotten around to seeing it. You know, he's just, he, he never has. And it's like, I, 
I think that a lot of people, especially in my age range and younger, are not big fans of the black and white. They don't they don't care for black and white movies because, you know, color is it's so vibrant, it's so it's so amazing to look at, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I guess it makes sense that you want to have have that color there, but I, you're missing out on so many great movies if you if you live like that. You've, you've got to understand, there are, there are great black and white movies out there, okay? So obviously, as I said, Gene Wilder was talking about this on the set of Blazing Saddles, and, you know, basically as he started talking about it, you know, Mel Brooks said, oh God, we don't need another Frankenstein movie. There's already, you know, like four of them or whatever. And, you know, Gene Wilder kind of posed this idea to him like, yeah, but what if he was like, sick of it. Like, he just didn't, he didn't like any of it, and he didn't want anything to do with it. And Mel Brooks was like, now that, that could be funny. They almost actually, Mel Brooks almost actually cut the putting on the Ritz scene, or didn't even shoot it, because he thought it was going to be too silly. And, I mean, it stands out, like I said, it is like the, the scene that you know from this movie if you know any scene from it. Gene Hackman is in this movie and he has about four minutes worth of screen time. He plays a old blind man and he uh, he actually did did this film for free and he had, he basically, he knew Gene Wilder. Apparently all the genes just get together and hang out. And so Gene Hackman did this movie for free because he wanted to try comedy and that was it. I mean, it was, but I mean, he did, he did an amazing job. He, he was very humorous and like apparently one of his lines that got the most laughs was actually ad-libbed, which is always awesome to hear. There's another scene that Cloris Leachman ad-libbed, you know, Frau Blucher. She ad-libbed a scene where the doctor is, you know, Dr. Frankenstein is going to bed. She starts offering him beverages to to help him go to sleep and she just starts naming one thing after another and coming back with more ideas of what he could drink and and he's like no really I'm fine one thing I did find funny about it because like only friends could act like this towards each other but like Gene Wilder told Mel Brooks that if he was going to make this movie that he did not want Mel Brooks to to be featured in it as a you know as an actor because Mel Brooks has this this tendency as Gene Wilder said to like break the fourth wall and to wink at the camera and make in jokes and stuff you know without even trying to so it was like Gene Wilder said I will make this movie with you if you promise not to be truly in it which he he is on screen at one point, but like not in any major capacity. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm glad that he honored his wishes because I think this movie works without Mel Brooks being on screen and just being the director. The walk this way thing was, by the way, was mentioned in the movie History of the World Part 1, which they never made a part two, by the way. And... It was in the movie Robin Hood Men in Tights. They made like the same walk this way joke because it's like, you know, Igor is like hunched over walking with a cane and he says, walk this way and like points him in the direction and then looks back and says, 
go on, walk this way. And then he hands him the cane and Dr. Frankenstein walks after him, you know, the same way he... Igor just walked, you know, it's just, it's fucking, it's silly, but it's funny. I didn't include him in the cast list, but uh, Kenneth Mars, who is, I only know him from this movie and the producers, he agreed, like, basically they cast him in this movie after he agreed to play a character who would be wearing an eye patch that was, that had a monocle over top of the, the eye patch. So, like, effectively a useless monocle, you know? And it was just like, it was so ridiculous. They just had to have it. Uh, the runtime of this movie is 105 minutes. Budget is 2.78 million, which actually that was a point of contention between, you know, what studio they ended up agreeing to do the movie with because, you know, they, they wanted a certain budget and they, they ended up getting it, I think from 20th Century Fox. So, uh, that worked out well for them. Worldwide gross to date is $86.2 million. Uh, the IMDb rating is a solid 8.0 out of 10. And that is classic territory, as I've mentioned in the past. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes critics score is 94%. And the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is 92%. My own personal rating, this is one of my favorite comedies of all time. 5 out of 5. I know I mostly talk about good movies or movies that I like, and I, I understand where you're coming from if that annoys you because you want you want something different. You know what I mean? You you want to hear a little bit of a little bit of cool stuff, you know, about about some other movies. And and I I'll admit I do get more fired up sometimes about the movies I don't like, but I'll get there. It's just there are certain movies I really want to make sure I cover on this on this podcast. That being said, and you know, as I mentioned, this uh, this list of notes is quite long, so I, I'm gonna push on through to the next movie, which is It's a Wonderful Life, which is possibly my favorite movie ever. Ever. And it was released on December 20th, 1946. It was directed by Frank Capra, who I was actually surprised. I was under the impression for some reason that I thought I had seen that he had directed more notable movies, but apparently not. He directed It Happened One Night, which was pretty good. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town was pretty solid. Uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, very memorable, very good movie. There are a couple of movies of his that, for, for one... You Can't Take It With You was one he won Best Picture for. But the the other one I've mentioned on this uh, on this podcast before, I think, and it's called Arsenic and Old Lace, and it's just terrible and unwatchable. Like, I fucking hate it. This was based on a book. Um, it was by Philip Van Doren Stern. It was called The Greatest Gift, which is a good, it's a good title for the story. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know. If I prefer it to It's a Wonderful Life, but I, I just I just found out when I was doing the research for this movie, I found out for the first time that it was based on this book. And this guy, I mean, the story of this guy getting this book made is such a fucking sad tale. Like, he basically couldn't get any publishers to, to publish it, and he ended up sending it out to like 200 family members at Christmas time. And it, I mean, I'm glad that it finally like worked out for him, but it's like, holy shit, man, that's, that's too bad. Like, I, I hate to hear when, you know, people have a good story and, 
you know, the, the people that they, they try and get to buy it won't buy in, you know? The composer for this movie is named Dmitry Tiamkin. I believe is how you pronounce his name. He did The Guns of Navarone, which I've heard of. High Noon, which I've seen with Gary Cooper. Giant, which has Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean. And I can't remember who else, but I can't remember who the other guy is. But anyway, maybe it's like Rock Hudson or some fucking thing. But anyway, Giant, I couldn't even fucking finish. It was like over three hours long, and it was, like, fucking boring as shit, man. Anyway, Red River, it seems like I had heard of that one. He also did uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is another Frank Capra movie. And then he did a handful of Alfred Hitchcock movies, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, he did Dial M for Murder. He did I Confess. And he did Strangers on a Train. All very solid Alfred Hitchcock movies. He had a lot of like early scores, but they weren't super memorable movies. You know, they didn't stand out. So uh, I won't get into those. Now, James Stewart plays the lead role in this movie. He plays George Bailey. And this, I mean, this movie is not just like he's the lead character. It's like everything to fucking do with George Bailey's life. Like, holy shit. James Stewart, also known as Jimmy Stewart. Uh, I, I will probably be referring to him as Jimmy Stewart throughout this, but he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, another Frank Capra movie, uh, The Shop Around the Corner, which eventually got remade into the movie You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. The Philadelphia Story, which is one of my favorite movies ever. It's got uh, Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and, and him. Rear Window, one of my favorite movies even more so than The Philadelphia Story. He was in Rope, which is an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's a very interesting, cool movie. Uh, Harvey, where he plays an alcoholic. Vertigo, which is another Alfred Hitchcock movie. The Man from Laramie, which is a Western. The Spirit of St. Louis, where he plays aviator Charles Lindbergh, and he, uh, you know, he does the flight across the the Atlantic, the first one ever. And then How the West Was Won is one that I bought thinking, oh my god, there's so many good people in this fucking movie. How could I possibly pass this up? And it is yet another one of those ones that it's like the testament to why you shouldn't buy a movie without having seen it first. It's just a very bad idea. Uh, alongside Jimmy Stewart in a much smaller capacity is Donna Reed, who plays Mary Hatch slash Mary Bailey. Spoiler alert, she marries George Bailey. She was, I, mean, I find it strange. She's not really in any, I tried because I mean, I have such a crush on Donna Reed and It's a Wonderful Life that I, I've always tried to track down more movies I could watch with her, but she's really not in very many that stand out as, like, well-rated movies or anything. I mean, she was on, she had her own show called The Donna Reed Show. I don't even know what that was, if it was a talk show or a variety show or what. Uh, she was on, apparently she was on Dallas, and so I posted something about my Donna Reed crush on Facebook and my friend's dad commented on the post and he's he's big on like old TV or older TV I should say and he basically told me this big long story about her getting cast on Dallas and she he basically painted her in a very negative light because it was like she hadn't done well and what what it was is like the backstory was she Donna Reed was cast to replace 
a cast member that had been on the show for a very long time and they like, you know, just shoehorned Donna Reed into the role and it was basically like it didn't go well and they ended up bringing the other lady back or whatever. But it's like, yeah, I'm not holding that against Donna Reed. I mean, she's playing a well-known character on a very popular TV show, whatever. And then you've got Thomas Mitchell, who is... uh he plays Uncle Billy, and I've actually, the reason why I picked him, I mean, he's he's a pivotal character in this story, but he is also somebody I've actually seen in a couple of other old movies. Uh, he was in Stagecoach with, I think, John Wayne, High Noon with Gary Cooper, as I mentioned, that I've seen, and he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, so there are a lot of connections to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for... You know, you got Frank Capra, you got Jimmy Stewart, you got Thomas Mitchell, you got the composer that I cannot for the life of me remember the name of, Dimitri Tiamkin. There we go. Okay, so the basic plot synopsis here. Now, stay with me. It's it's kind of rough because they would never make a movie like this nowadays. So George Bailey basically grows up doing what's right and helping other people or, uh, you know, saving the lives of people around him. His guardian angel at the very beginning of the movie is basically introduced to his life because George is like contemplating suicide. You know, it's a pretty grim fucking thing, but it's like, okay. You know, so so basically the, this, this movie is for the most part, like for the first half of the movie or more, it is just this guardian angel with these two other angels getting to know... George Bailey and like learning about the things that he's done in his life and all the changes that have happened in the world or the world around him because of what he's done. Um, and I mean, everything is for the better, you know what I mean? He's, he's helped out numerous, he's, he saved his brother's life. He, you know, prevented, uh, his boss when he was a little kid, you know, he prevented his boss from accidentally poisoning somebody from a pharmacy. So, I mean, he also, but he basically, the theme of the movie is that he sacrifices much of his personal life to help other people out, you know what I mean? And it's it's a very awesome thing to make a movie about, you know what I mean? To to promote that altruistic behavior is is huge. You get a lot of famous scenes in this movie. I mean, one of the bigger ones that I always think of is like they have a dance at this uh basically it's like a gymnasium that has this experimental um, thing where it's like the 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 actual swimming pool is underneath this retractable floor for the for the high school, right? And so you know, there's this big scene with this. You know, they open up the floor accidentally or on on purpose, but like they open up the floor, and you know, a bunch of people that are dancing start falling into the pool and blah blah blah. And and then like right after that, you get like probably the most famous scene of the movie, which is the scene where George and Mary are walking home from the dance and things are getting really romantic. And, you know, George says, and I, I apologize for this impression. It used to be a lot better than it is now, but ever since I had the throat damage from the hospital, blah, blah, blah. Um, George says this line to Mary. He says, what did you want, Mary? Was it the moon? Say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. You know, he says he says that and it's like he clearly is into her 
But then it's like, he couldn't, I don't know, it, it's very strange. But anyway, so George and Mary eventually get married, and they, uh, there's, you know, this is, this is set during about the time of, like, the stock market crash, and there's a bank run, and all this stuff going on. It's a very pivotal scene, it's very memorable. Potter is the evil old man that's, like, the richest man in town, and he's, He's just an awful human being and he doesn't care about anybody but himself, you know? I think I remember seeing there was an SNL sketch with Dana Carvey because Dana Carvey could do a Jimmy Stewart impression. And, like, they they go back and they, like, beat the shit out of uh, Old Man Potter because he's, like, basically the cause of all the woes in this movie. You got George and Mary's wedding night where, you know, they're, they're in this, you know, run-down old house that they're going to live in now basically just the entire movie you're watching George help people you know he's he's putting his neck on the line for other people and not you know he's not getting anything back for it you know what I mean and so it's like it's like you feel for him it's he's just doing the right thing you know what I mean he's not being selfish and he's he's being a good guy and, and obviously you know like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Uncle Billy George's Uncle Billy is a dumb fuck piece of shit and uh, loses like $8,000 in this movie, which is by, and I, I didn't look this up, but I'm confident that $8,000 by 1946 standards would be close to $11 billion by 2022 standards adjusted for inflation. So yeah, I mean... Fuck you, Uncle Billy, and your irresponsible horse shit. Which, by the way, look up The Onion uh, on, on YouTube. Look up their review of It's a Wonderful Life. And it's I think his name's Peter K. Rosenthal. And he talks about this movie. It's highly enjoyable. I, I strongly recommend that. I would say, you know, it's something's always off about the acting in older, like, black and white movies. Or even just older movies in general. And I don't get it coming through as much here. I think a lot of the acting is a, is fucking amazing. It's it's great acting. Everybody does a great job. You know, it is what it is. It's it's some of the stuff that you see in this movie is of its time and that's that's the way it is, you know, what can you do? I also put Jimmy Stewart's all-American ridiculous voice and I just I love Jimmy Stewart. I really do. I mean, my aunt was telling me she couldn't stand to watch this movie because she can't stand his voice. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I don't want to hear another fucking word out of your mouth. Another another element of praise is Donna Reed being someone you could see falling hard for. And George just kind of acts like he's settling like a pimp. So, you know, there's that. Promotes an altruistic lifestyle giving back to people, doing doing the right thing, doing it just for a fuck ton of different people that are, you know, to a greater and to a lesser degree involved in your life. You know what I mean? Like, you're doing something for them. You know what I mean? Just to just to promote the greater good. So there, there are a lot of uh, great moments throughout this movie. There are some very gripping, serious moments. Like, there is the scene, you know, as I mentioned, George is contemplating suicide. He's... He's very afraid that he's going to go to, to jail because his uncle has lost this money. You know, he's on this bridge and you're like, fucking man, like you're feeling for him. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of rough, you know, I mean, just to think about my only, 
my only major criticism of this film is that Jimmy Stewart was pushing 40 years old and he portrays his freshly graduated high school self in this movie. So, you know, probably like 20 years older than what he actually was, which I was really surprised to see was he was actually like almost 40 because I didn't, I, I knew he was older, but I didn't think he was that much older. I thought it was maybe just like a, he, he was, he just seemed like an older guy all the time. I guess one note I would like to make that I also learned in the research of this uh, little movie here is uh, apparently Frank Capra, the director, was kind of a monster to work with and he had uh, a falling out with like a lot of the writers and the composer and just overall people were not impressed with him as a person. So some factoids, I was trying Throw some factoids out there. Dalton Trumbo, who is a notable uh, writer from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and I, or at least if I remember right, there, there was a biopic based on his life that starred Brian Cranston. And basically this guy got blacklisted. You know, he was known or he was accused of having communist sympathies. And so he, he was a great writer. He wrote a lot of great movies. And I, I mean, look him up sometime, Dalton, Dalton Trumbo. He actually worked on a version of this movie. And in this movie, in this, uh, this version of the movie, Trumbo had the story originally making George be a politician. And then he was contemplating suicide after losing an election. And then the angel, Clarence, is the name of the guardian angel. He actually shows George what his life would be like if he went into business instead of politics. Which would, would not be very profound. You know what I mean? It would not be... I mean, especially, like, as far as standing the test of time. Like, I'm sure people felt pretty shitty about politicians then too but like right now if you tried to tell me like oh yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch a movie to you where the lead character is a politician and they're contemplating suicide and the way that we convince you that their life is worth living is by showing you what it would have been like if they would have become a business person like get the fuck out of here so the the actual way that you know like so Clarence comes and, you know, the way they do it is they show George Bailey what his life would have been like without him having been in it, you know? So if he had never been born is is essentially what the, the concept of the movie is, is how we're going to show George Bailey how much of an impact he's had, right? Uh, another... Another actor, an actor that I really enjoy that was considered for the role of George Bailey was Henry Fonda. And he, I mean, honestly, he could have been great in the role. And I mean, shit, some people might have even liked it better, but I, I fucking love Jimmy Stewart, so I'm sorry, I can't. Uh, Vincent Price, who is a noted horror movie uh, star, was considered for the role of Potter. And uh, one interesting little tidbit. So there's this movie is set during, you know, some parts are set during Christmas time. And so it, it has become a bit of a Christmas movie. The snow that they used on this movie was made from water, soap flakes, 
fomite, which apparently is like in like a lot of fire extinguishers and stuff, and then sugar, and and that's what they used to create the stuff that looked like snow. And I thought that was pretty cool. They said that they used to use uncooked cornflakes, and they used them, and like they would have to, you know, they would crunch when you walked on them. So that every time you had a scene in the snow, you had to re, you know, you had to dub over the things that the people said because you couldn't understand them, which is outrageous to me. But it is what it is. So this movie had a runtime of 131 minutes. I'm assuming these numbers are adjusted for inflation because there's no fucking way they cost this much. But this movie had a $3.18 million budget. And the worldwide gross to date was $3.3 million. So, here's the thing about this movie. This movie was largely unsuccessful upon release. And then there was basically a lapse in the rights to the movie. And so a lot of networks started showing this movie on their channels around Christmas time. Because it was... You know, it was like it either didn't cost them anything or it didn't cost them much or whatever. So this movie actually became very successful because of the fact that it was, you know, somebody let the rights lapse on it. And, I mean, it could have just never, you, you might have just never heard of it if that hadn't happened. Uh, the IMDb rating for this movie is 8.6 out of 10. The Rotten Tomato Critics score is 94%. The Rotten Tomato audience score is 95%. My own personal rating is 5 out of 5 stars, although if I were allowed to and not bound by earthly rules, I would rate it higher than 5 out of 5 stars because it's that fucking good. I love it. It's great. My only regret in this review is that I couldn't do more Jimmy Stewart impressions because I just am not that good at it anymore and I couldn't live with myself if I had to hear myself because I know I'm going to listen to this podcast later and it's going to sound not like I want it to anyway. So thanks everybody for tuning in. I do appreciate it. Um, and, I, and I know I say that every episode and it's it might sound like I'm just saying it to say it, but it's it's true. I really do appreciate it. I, um, although I do do this for fun, I really have a good time making it and I, I want people to enjoy what I do. You know, I want people to, to, to have fun like I'm having fun making these episodes. So, uh, thank you very much. Obviously, as always, you know, pitch me your ideas for what you'd like to see covered on this podcast. You know, pitch me some movies that, Maybe you don't think I've seen because I'd like to do more movies that I've never seen, but I've I've kind of run that well so dry lately that I'm just kind of like apprehensive about trying movies because I haven't been impressed with a lot of new movies recently. So, all right, everyone. Thank you for your time. Have a good day. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 